0: Good afternoon, this is Gary Kavanagh here on TRSI. I'm here today with my friend and colleague, Michael Dwyer. Today is Sunday. It is the 21st of the 8th. Michael, how have you been since last week?
1: I've been fine, Gary. Just chuffing along, chuffing along, doing fine. How are you?
0: I'm good. My house is slowly filling with hiking equipment. I mean, my my living room floor is literally just strewn with hiking equipment.
1: And has the pain started to, dis- to diminish a little bit, or are you still basically... A broken man.
0: I, I'm still a broken man, but uh you see the problem here, Michael, is because you're training for something, you just keep pushing yourself. So every week I hike more uh, because I'm getting better at it, but because I hike more, I'm equally crippled at the end of it. So, to start off with, Michael wanted to talk about something we brought up last week, because apparently I said something that has been rattling uh, its way around in his head for the entire week. And so, Michael, we may as well go through that. Enlighten me as to what uh, incredibly influential thing I said.
1: You did actually say something, Joke, you said that, you, that, that what has been going around in my head a lot. Um, we were having a conversation about the importance of free speech. And you were talking about the fact that I kept referring to uh, it as I was listening back to the podcast. I referred to the ICCL, I don't know in many different ways. I think it was the ICLU, the ACCL, the uh, anyway. But the ICCL, and you were talking that you said that it was one of the most pernicious organisations because it had a role, perhaps a soi-disant, self-appointed role, as defender of civil liberties, and it simply was not doing that job. And consequently, we, we discussed the fact that it gave cover to the government to introduce uh, legislation which was deeply illiberal and corrosive to civil liberties but because it was getting the imprimatur from the the ICCL they could pass it and also the effect it had on other organisations and, and just generally and we were discussing the part and you said something you said one of the problems is the way we frame this discussion that we look at it too much very often in the that that context of say the constitutional protections of the of free speech in the United States uh, we have to move on from that and 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 start to look at it more in the context of valuing free speech as a thing which is important of itself and not just for one reason, but for many reasons, both in the social context, in the economic context, in the political context, and that in a complex society, that we really, we, we need to move on. And I, I've been thinking a lot about that, and I think that's absolutely true. We were talking about it in the fact that as at the DBI is fundamentally interested in education regarding issues around using the the market as the most efficient tool to solving problems in economics and in social policy and other areas. But because uh, we're forced to get involved in discussions which we really don't want to be involved with because there isn't anybody else doing it when we get onto issues like, say, free speech and legislation which has been passed which is going to impede, say, the right to protest or the right to assemble or free speech. Okay, let's let's put it in a context here, Gary. I I imagine you have seen the the reports uh, for, published by the Guardi regarding hate crimes.
0: Yes, hate crime and hate related non crime incidents. The yes, they just released the figures for twenty twenty one. I think on Friday.
1: Now there were four hundred and forty eight hate crimes and hate related incidents recorded by Guardi. Now the first thing to say about this, and we'll get into the more meaty stuff at the end of this. But first of all, Gary. Did I miss something? Okay, we have already on the statute book in this country laws regarding incitement to hatred, but the discussion regarding, say, hate crimes and hate speech, this is still very much in gestation, in the works, is it not? We have not new legislation. What, so, what are the what are these hate crimes?
0: You're absolutely right that none of this is, is, is legislatively backed. The guards brought in basically an internal definition of what a hate crime was as part of their diversity and inclusion program. So when the guards say hate crime, that's that's just a phrase. That's not to imply there is anything on the Irish statute book that could be referred to as a hate crime. Basically, they have, they have created it themselves internally, almost as if they are legislating and they report on it as if it was a crime that they were tracking, whilst it is absolutely not an actual crime that
1: they are tracking. The definition or the description, shall we say, of it is a, a hate crime is recorded if a victim or any any other person, not just the victim. I mean, this is weird stuff. Any other person perceives that an incident was motivated by hostility or prejudice based on nine protected characteristics. So not the victim necessarily, but and any other person perceives, Gary. It is a perception. Doesn't have to be grounded at the reality, doesn't have to be rooted in any kind of evidentiary. Substance, but perceives that an incident was motivated by hostility or prejudice based on nine protected characteristics. Now, Gary, this does this not seem to imply that somebody now has? If we're going to go on motivation, that in this context, that people now have the capacity to look into another person's heart and see why they did something. This just seems weird. I mean, also the word crime has a meaning. And when the police force of a country is using the word crime, you would hope that that meaning would be pretty precise. The internal guard, the definition of
0: this, when they say hate crime, what they mean is any criminal offence which has been reported to them, where there is a perception that hostility or prejudice based on any of those characteristics was involved. And a hate crime or a hate-related incident, non-crime, it's basically where someone calls the guards about something which is not a criminal activity in any way but where they say that they were um, something happened that was motivated by hostility or prejudice but there's the public definition of hate crime michael but i have the actual uh, press release that went out from the guards about this And the definition there under the note to editors section is actually slightly different than what they say to the public. So what they say is a hate-related discriminatory motive is recorded based on a perception test. This means that if the victim or any other person perceives the incident was motivated by hostility or prejudice based on one of the nine protected characteristics, it is recorded as such. Any other person may include a witness, family member, relatives friends gather the personnel non-governmental or civil society organisations who have knowledge of the victim alleged crime or scenario or support worker or professional with a particular knowledge of the victim no corroborating evidence is required in order to make a report and we strongly re- encourage all those who have experienced hate related crimes slash incidents to report them to us so it's not even a victim saying something happened and there may have been you know we think it may have happened because of gender or um, age or religion or anything like that. It could be an a, a NGO. So if an NGO, let's say, let's take for instance INAR, who conduct, who have their own little internal polling on this where you can go online and it's fully anonymous and you can report a racist instance with absolutely no check on it or no verification accounts. INAR could then use that to go to the guards and report all of those instances as hate crimes. And the guards would note them as such, even though there is nothing there which would allow them to check or verify or even confirm these came from real people.
1: Those numbers would then be published in the statistics, regurgitated in the press, and presented as facts representative of hate crimes occurring in this country.
0: Michael, I would never suggest that such a thing could happen in this situation. But the reason why you generally don't allow stuff like that to happen is that NGOs that work in this space tend to receive funding based in part on political and public perception of how bad the problem is in this area. So if you're letting the people in that area basically give you anything they want in order to get whatever figures they want, that would be considered a problem in most places, because an unscrupulous organisation could just lie to you, knowing that in doing so they might be able to secure some financial uh, outcome for themselves. Again, Michael, I would never suggest that any of the fine, upstanding NGOs in Ireland would do that. I'm just saying that, you know, you you don't want to create a system where any NGO could do that.
1: Okay, Gary. Well, I accept, and I think everybody listening will accept that any NGO would not do something as consciously malevolent as that. But I'll give you another case. I suggest, Gary, it is possible that activists who are working in this area might have a different understanding of what constitutes hate or hate speech or aggravated hateful speech than perhaps the man on the street or the woman on the street. And so somebody might use language or say something which they regard as being ordinary observation, statement of fact, or at least something which is a reasonable thing to say. But somebody who is within a member of, oh, Gary, any number of activist groups who are involved in advocacy upon different uh, protected groups Say regarding gender or sex sexuality or something might say no that is hate speech that is hateful that is by definition hate speech for example dead naming somebody would dead naming someone be hate speech there would be many people who would absolutely consider it to be and that would be recorded and that would be an aggravating... that would be an aggravate. no this would, in the context of a crime it would be an aggravating factor in a crime making it a hate crime
0: well I mean Michael there's thing you could record that as a you know a hate instance non-crime but maybe you could say that doing so was harassment and therefore, should be considered a crime. Yeah, it'd actually be quite interesting to see. I mean, if you're giving the guards basically anonymized data, how the guards would have any way of breaking that down other than what you
1: tell them? If we are going to sacrifice free speech, and which, as we said, we were discussing before, I mean, this fundamental value for an for the nature of an open society, where people are not afraid, literally, af- not afraid, which I think is. Happening, maybe not as much as people think, but I think it is happening where people are afraid to say things because they are afraid that the they're th- what they are thinking is somehow so beyond the bounds of what is considered socially acceptable within certain corners of social media and large swathes of the mainstream media, that they can't say it because then they will become an object of possibly of ridicule or possibly of of grave hostility. So they don't say it. That is simply a bad thing for, for any kind of functioning democracy. When people start to be afraid of saying things, that are not held, that are not intended to be hateful, that are not said from hate, but are simply rooted in how these people perceive the reality of the world to be organised. If we're going to sacrifice that, we better be sacrificing it for something very serious indeed. It works in politics, it's a question of economics, we free movement and exchange of information is absolutely central to the functioning of what we consider to be Western democracy. You look at um, the work of Deirdre McCluskey, for example, and what Deirdre McCluskey has done as an economic historian is looked at the whole issue regarding why Western economies are so successful, why sometime around 300 years ago, 250, 300 years ago, the western societies and economies just took off in a way that didn't happen anywhere else Our argument is very much based on ideas it's not on resources it's not not great it's not on empires it's not even on technology although technology is part of it but it's about the capacity for people to compete with compete in a marketplace of ideas and to express those ideas you go back she would say go back to the 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 Dutch Republics in say that in the in the in the seventeenth century I mean one thing that we know about that and say in the United Kingdom also in the seventeenth and eighteenth centuries is pamphleteering this was this was the massive effect of the printing printing press and the and the pamphleteers and they were savage sorry. these people were not nice this was not this was there was no political correctness there they were absolutely horrible but there was an absolutely savage competition. In language and in ideas. And this is one of the things that spurs on those, those societies and those economies that would become the patterns for what we now call sort of late stage capitalism, if we're not using the language of Marx. When we talk about a market, a market, we talk about the free market. What is the market, Gary? The market is simply a mechanism for the discovery of prices and the communication with organic communication of what those prices are. In an incredibly complex function. One of the reasons that planned economies don't work is because you just can't manage all of the information. You, you don't there's no mechanism for, for doing that. The market is the kind it's an organic me- method for discovering price and communicating that information. And if we take that out, not just in the economic sense, that's true in the social market, it's true in the political market. We we're not in a position to understand. We're not no government, no minister in this government, no, cabinet members in a position, that they know they can discreetly make distinctions between what this kind of this this is this is going to be acceptable and this is not going to be acceptable, and we're going to make those distinctions. Yes, in any society in Europe, we make distinctions very gross, very large distinctions of the kinds of language that we, we that we, we, we have decided we're going to police. But that tends to be language which is directly engaged in seeking an outcome. These are not expressions of annoyance or expressions of simply of trying to hurt people, hurt people's feelings. I mean, that's what we do a lot. But this isn't necessarily any kind of, to me, probative at all, that there is something dark and wicked in your heart. And even if there is, are we to be punished for what we feel? The idea that that we have increasingly so little... Value on the notion of the importance of free speech is deeply deeply concerning. I think at this, and just on the subject of hate crimes, um, a friend of ours always thought used to quote to me the example. I think it's in Tolstoy. The example of there's a princess in one of Tolstoy. Maybe it's War and Peace. At the, and at at that time, there was no divorce in Russia. Right at the court in Moscow, she or, or St. Petersburg, wherever it was, she would always tell people that she was divorced, and she simply by dint of repeating this. People gradually accepted that the Duchess was, in fact, divorced. I think that's what's happening with this kind of stuff. We haven't actually got the legislation. We haven't actually done it. But by simply repeating and repeating and repeating this this language language of hate crime, the language of non crime hate related incidents, and we're we're giving getting the police to be involved in recording these, and then they record and then they publish in the papers. We're creating a narrative. I know, God, this sounds like the stuff that we we see far too much on, on the internet. But I I I think that it's obviously what's happening. We're creating a narrative so that when we actually do it, people will just assume, that oh, this has happened already. This is already done. This is a de facto. This is this is a fair complete. And it's, I don't know. I I, I I do not see this ending well for us, Gary. I do not. But I don't see an end point to it. I mean, that's one of the problems, you might say, historically, not just on the left. But in this case, we're talking about the left because they have the whip and progress. There is no final point. There's no point where you can say this stops. And as, as you said, if your business is hate... If that's your business as an NGO, as a charity, as an advocacy group, you are going to find hate. You're going to generate it. You're going to manufacture it. Gary, is that a recipe for a happy society i'm not just talking i'm not just talking about race relations by the way lots of other things i mean the the umbrella of the protected is getting wider and wider and wider so everybody is being given an identity these identities of course are in, are intersectional and therefore by definition dreadfully unstable but everybody is being given an identity and at the same time we are abandoning the idea of some kind of supranational or overarching identity that might actually unite us as a As a people or as a nation, to use that very old-fashioned word. I
0: remember a couple of years ago, I think it was um, on this podcast, we had on a guy called Bo Weinegaard. Yeah. And he is a professor of an American. And he was asking me about that. He was asking me what I thought about the way things were going in that regard. And I think my line then was that the greater focus on the things that divide people rather on the overarching things that unite them is only really going to end one way. And for all the people involved in, let's say, you know, minority affairs who are trying to push it, the problem is that you keep pushing it long enough. And what you most likely do is create a sense of identity on, let's say, racial grounds among the majority that may not have been there before or may have been slowly weakening. So, I mean, you look at America, you keep telling people that, you know, white people should be judged for the sins of their forefathers. Eventually, someone is going to turn up and go, well, perhaps you should also be judged by the successes of of your forefathers. And maybe there's other stuff there that uh, puts you apart from people of other races, and that will end poorly
1: for all involved. Yeah, if we're going to play the identity game, well, then eventually one of the biggest group is going to say, well, we, why can't we play too?
0: I mean, this thing, it's, it's a game that can only really be played in the modern West because if you try to play it anywhere else, it just wouldn't run because it relies on the person you are telling. Um, you're telling them that they are privileged or things of that nature. It relies on them being incredibly agreeable and basically accepting that that is a terrible thing. And actually, there's a great Beavis and Butthead episode, Michael, where they wander into a university and end up in a, a feminist classroom and are told that they have male privilege and that um, they, they won't suffer the consequences of any of their actions because of that, because society will protect them, and they just go on a rampage. And when they are eventually stopped by police, they simply say, "Uh, you can't uh, do anything else, we have a privilege. And that's your problem. If you say things like that to people who aren't agreeable and don't really care about you, then the answer can just be, maybe I don't have enough. And I, I wonder, will we reach a point where people just lose that sort of agreeableness that they've had so far, and decide that actually they don't really care if those people are right. Or maybe it's good if they're right, and that will end. Well, I mean, it'll be funny at least.
1: What the real danger there? I think is okay. There, there are two. There are lots of different outcomes, and one outcome is possible: is you simply say, okay, if we're playing identity as a game, then we we're going to play because there's still lots of us, and we're going to try and win, whoever we we are. And you might argue that that's, a thing. It's in a sense, what happened when Trump won the election in the United States. Not that the people who were voting for Trump were doing so in a negative, reactive way against other groups, but rather saying, well, OK, let, you know, we feel ignored, we feel unheard we're going to play this and we're going to we're going to play this game too from that you, there is the other terrible the the most single most poisonous thing i think that dominates the political life of the 20th century and comes out of the 19th century people like uh i think nietzsche talks about this very well is resentment the, and the resentment is incredibly corrosive not just to the, the person who resents but throughout the wider society, if you start to breed resentment by insisting on these identity characteristics and telling one group or one or some groups that they are less to be heard, they are less to be listened to because they are in some sense privileged or they have advantages, which they may not perceive that they have. You know, like if you are whatever the Irish equivalent of the Appalachian coal miner or, or the, the laid off steel worker is, then you say, well, where the fuck's my white privilege? I'm sorry, I'm not saying it. And then you start to resent other people that you feel are being given unfair advantages because of a, a privilege that you feel is mythical. And once you start, once you breathe resentment, then it seems to me all you're doing is you're inviting a kind of politics in that nobody wants to. To see well i certainly i think we don't want to see anyway i just want to say that i i think that's something you throw out there and we, we may return to it another day but that that idea you're saying i think it's really important that we and and particularly i think conservatives have to because we have to recognize that you know we get offended too when we don't like stuff and we have a history his conservatives people on the right of the history of when 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 we were the censors of making sure that those voices weren't heard. now the, the whip hand, the the left, the progressives have the whip hand when it comes to censorship, and we don't like it. But I think we need to reflect on that. It's not simply about, you know, it's not about making sure that the right person gets the whip. We should be taking the whip out of this. We should... Be reflecting on the simple value to a successful society, and I mean successful economically, socially, politically, that freedom of speech has, and that, and get away from this sort of simple legalistic or financial or, or economic understanding of free speech, but rather that it, it is ultimate, it is that value that is going to keep us going and bring us all sorts of benefits in the same way that you know this, the, it's, it's a version of the hidden hand that. Smith talks about, that by defending things for practical reasons, we will get all sorts of positive moral outcomes as well. I used to say, and I know regular listeners will have heard me say before, I I have often liked to tell politicians that we're helping in something or other, that very often the right thing to do is the right thing to do.
0: I think an interesting mark of this age is that as we've moved to a very sort of modern discourse has a very particular focus on individual choice. And the problem there is there are lots of choices which individually can be beneficial or at worst neutral, but are massively corrosive if conducted in mass. And societies, particularly in the West, have lost a lot of their ability to argue that people should not be allowed to do things because they are um when when replicated Deeply damaging to the common good. So it's, I mean, I I remember during the abortion referendum, uh, when they did polling, one of the things I remember the pro-life side were surprised by, were the amount of people who said that they believed that abortion was the killing of a human child, but they didn't want to have to tell anyone that they couldn't do what they wanted with their body now setting aside your own views on abortion for a second that is a profoundly weird statement to say that you believe in action is the killing of another human being but you don't want to tell someone that they can't do it people who say it's not a human being and you know that's a different thing there's different moral things at play there that's just a very weird position for a society to take that we are so so dedicated to individual liberty that we wouldn't stop someone from killing another thing, and which is weird because that's—I mean—that is not a consistent value at all. No,
1: it's not. I think I know you're absolutely right, and I think if we look at issues to say around hate speech and hate crime, what we're looking at is we—we we have become almost atomistic in the way we look at how we're going to manage the society. That if you can find one person who is hurt, who is offended by something, we're willing to say, okay, we're going—we're going to—we're going, to, going to actually curtail what has been these hard-won, hard-fought-for civil liberties across society in order to protect the feelings of this one individual. And that seems to me to be a really disproportionate response to this problem. As long as I don't have to take part, I don't have to be involved. And also, most importantly, I don't have to know about it.
0: But then you will, you will vote for it, thereby allowing it to happen, therefore becoming morally involved in the outcome.
1: Yeah, no I, you're, no, I think you're no. I think you're right. I think that was the experience we all had. You know, we talked about it before. There's the old, yeah. excuse me, it's old. You know, the old Kantian. saw. So what I cannot recommend for myself, I cannot recommend for others. But that which I counsel for myself, I must counsel for others. That's gone. The idea that because I I regard something as a moral a, tr- a moral fact, a moral truth, I have I am in no position there for, to to recommend that. And I don't know how you I, on that basis. I don't know how you organize a society. And yet the weird thing at the same time is. The same people who will, who will do this are also the same people who say that, at an economic way, we need to organize our society in this incredibly. Overarching course of way to in, to take increasingly large amounts of tax from people in order to give them to to distribute the wealth to other people, and we must have increasingly uh, intrusive government agencies that which can go into people's families and tell them how to bring up their children or how they are going to their schools and tell them the kind of ethos and education their children must have because this is in, this is for the common good. There's this it's a to me. There's a, weird, a a strange dissonance in coherence in that there is. And
0: I, I mean, if you have a position and it is consistent at least it is presumably well understood and you've thought about it but you're getting this weird mishmash of stuff which is on one hand total atomization and that we should be separate from each other and you know if people consent and it's what you want to do that's all that matters combined with an ever-increasing growth of the state and i think it goes back to burke's quote michael actually i should preface this by saying i think this quote is is pretty much the essence of conservatism that man is free to the extent to which he is willing to put chains upon his appetite that a man unwilling to do that is not free he is subject to his own appetites and the less control there is within the more there must be without.
1: You know, I suppose the great noise in the 20th century, at least after the Second World War, was the, was a rejection of the idea that any kind of restraint or any kind of chain could be anything except repression and had to be negative and distorting. If
0: you have people who, again with the, the abortion thing, who are willing to say, these are my views, but it is not my place To get involved in this or to do certain things then someone has to regulate it and if it's not going to be the citizens it will be the state and so more and more will go to the state simply because people are unwilling to do it to to do anything at a social level on it so the state must grow on that basis which again michael is a wonderful reminder that in a democracy it might be horrible but you get what
1: you deserve oh yeah we you get it and you get it good and hard Actually, just
0: on a point you were making there about resentment, there are certain politics, not just left-wing politics, but a lot of the more progressive politics, which are driven primarily by resentment. And just as a side note here, resentment is a really interesting um, psychological mechanism, because, Michael, anger and hatred can actually make you happy. Mm-hmm. And they can give you purpose in life. And they can actually be, from a purely psychological viewpoint, incredibly positive to you. Now, they can be terrible to people around you, but you can feel great about it. Resentment is one of the things that can both cause you to act and utterly destroy you in it. Resentment corrodes people in a way that actually, while we say things like anger can destroy you, lots of time it doesn't. Anger can be a very positively motivating force, like anger against injustice, anger at improper treatment things like that resentment resentment will fuck you up
1: resentment is the acid in your stomach that eats away at you anger can be like that but it can be as you said I mean the, the biblical distinction between anger of one kind and then there's righteous anger which can drive you on and can be a very and can be a positive and motivating factor yeah but resentment no resentment is never and there's no there's no creativity there's no creativity to resentment either resentment is always about taking from someone else or uh, uh, it is always a zero sum game it's always about tearing down it's never creative I, I think
0: you're right in that but i think part of the problem with resentment is that resentment usually requires a comparison to the self which is negative so you resent other people for having more than you which means you must also look at yourself and judge that you have less or little um, and that's not a great way to go through life. So I mean we'll, we'll move on to the next topic uh, now Michael but I think the important thing for listeners to remember is that any man who carries a hyphen with him carries a dagger <laughs> that he is ready to plunge into the vitals of this republic. A hyphen? A hyphen yeah that was that was uh, you know? that was uh, Woodrow Wilson's quote when he was asked about because you were starting to see like German Americans Asian Americans and he was asked what he thought about it and he said that any man who carries carries a hyphen, carries with him a dagger, ready to plunge into the heart of the Republic. And you know what? Woodrow Wilson was right about that.
1: For once, Woodrow was right about something. I think, just before we go, I think it's interesting, it reminds me a little bit of a germade I have made in the past about people who qualify the basic virtues, particularly justice. You either, you've justice you don't have social justice, you don't have racial justice, you don't have gender justice. You don't indeed, I mean, I I remember the joy when I walked past Stephen's Green and I I was on Stephen's Green and I walked past Mary Robinson's office where she has an office, at the time I don't know if it's still there, she should have played up, dedicated uh, to climate justice. But we now live in a world where people are absolutely convinced that you can do wrong by doing, you can do right by doing wrong, you can do justice by doing injustice to an individual, where you can use some as a means to an end. We, we, We should have worked out by now that that's not the way to go, that this does not have a happy ending. Well Gary, yes, yes, you say, let's move along.
0: So I suppose, Michael, we should we should mention that um our constant decrying of, of the state of electrical grid in Ireland is now being backed up by the by the regulators, talking about things like possible blackouts in winter, higher than expected demands, all of that stuff. And I I really want to bring this up, Michael, because it's a topic that you have been asking me to talk about on this show for ages. And every time I have just sort of went, I assume people know that already. It's probably not worth going into in detail um but which i think actually i I may have been wrong about i'm not sure how many people are actually aware of that and that is the gas reserves ireland has michael the undoubtedly bountiful gas reserves that ireland has which the last time i saw any sort of european-wide report on this yeah where it's giving roughly what it is and i think it's metric tons gas is measured in can't actually remember and you get all these wonderful numbers michael because who doesn't love a, a table of numbers? And then um, Ireland kind of stands out
1: because Ireland is always zero. Ireland is not just zero. Ireland is a double zero because what they do in the charts is they describe two things. In the charts that, that are going around, at the they first show the capacity that each country has to store gas, right? And then they will show the percentage of that storage which is full. So the, the highest a capacity is in weirdly Germany has quite quite a bit, Italy large, Netherlands very big, again Netherlands is a very at least it used to be, I think it still is very large producer of natural gas Um and then you have the percentage. So Austria has sixty percent full, although I believe on the basis of their usage, Austria that represents almost a year's consumption. Every country has a certain capacity, and every country has a certain percentage. So for example, Poland has 99%. Portugal is a hundred percent, it's all of its capacity is full. It doesn't have a huge amount of capacity, but it's full. Ireland has capacity, zero and therefore naturally amounts. Uh, storage of percentage, zero. We are zero. We have done nothing. You're worried, Gary, that we're talking about this too much. Okay, fine, maybe we are. But one thing you can be guaranteed is that all over Europe, in every government that has somebody who's in charge of energy, they have been talking about this nonstop for quite some time now. And they have been desperately trying to do something about it. We, for whatever reason, have decided to do nothing. We haven't even decided to do nothing. We're going back over maybe old plowed land here. We've done the opposite. When we have had proposals for stuff that we could do, for example, construct a, uh, uh, a facility to take in liquid gas, liquid natural gas from the United States or other places, the Minister for the Environment has intervened To direct that we should not be, we should we should not do that. Instead of using the infrastructure that exists on the old Kinsale gas field to use that for storage, they've actually continued to dismantle the present infrastructure so that we can't do it. Instead of actually moving towards in a making a positive uh, gesture towards this, we're actually moving the opposite direction. I, I I don't. I, I want an explanation from you, Gary. I want someone to tell me why. And to say that politicians who are stupid and venal and corrupt and or, or just, I don't know, whatever. That, they can't be that much different to politicians in Latvia or in Italy, for God's sake. Why? Why are we so bad at this?
0: In relation to energy, no, we're not different to a lot of politicians in those places because they're seeing the same problems and it appears for the same root causes. But Michael, I just want to give you a quote from the Business Post. A couple of lines of an article that just came out. Government launches review of power supply crisis as cabinet anger grows. Ministers, livid and astounded that situation has been allowed to get this bad. Members of the government are understood to be astounded at the unfolding crisis, with many senior government figures questioning the competency of the Commission for Regulation of Utilities and Airgrid, the national grid operator. The idea, this is a quote from a government source, Michael, now be this is now being managed at the most senior levels of government, the idea that things have been allowed to get this bad is quite frankly astonishing. There is a lot of anger towards the CRU and questions about their competence now. The same for Airgrid. The government is absolutely absolutely livid now yeah it's not a bad thing michael that this is being considered by cabinet at the highest level but as you said michael we've talked about this i would say probably too much but we've been talking about it for a while now we haven't? were
1: talking before covid about a report that was being commissioned at the time for energy security they've been, they do they they, they do reports on 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 ongoing energy security i think it feels like every year how is it possible that we did we actually had people in the business of looking at energy security and yet we got to the place where we are today? Yes
0: and we've been talking for a long while about the impact of government policies rather than external shocks to the issues we've seen in this area for quite a while. So it strikes me Michael I mean it is the eighth month of the year. we're coming into Q4 we're coming into a worsening weather we've got warnings. And suddenly, now there's going to be a review and the government is astonished that this has gotten to be so bad. I would have thought, Michael, that that the government had some degree of competency over this area. And while I like to think I'm generally an informed person, although never as informed as I would like to be, I suspect there are a great deal of people in the civil service, and possibly politicians, who know a lot more than me about this area and a lot more about you, most likely. So you kind of would have thought... This is kind of something you would see coming. Not something, just before you go into winter, you have to come out, hold a review for, at breakneck speed, and suddenly say, God, whose fault is it this? Certainly not ours, but someone must be found. They're going to hold a review now? We're going to have a review? Uh, yes, the general, or the, it's a guy called Dermot McCarthy... Um, who was the Secretary General to the Taoiseach in the early two thousands?
1: So he's gonna he's gonna put a review in place. Really, we're going to have. Uh, well, you see, there is something fundamentally problematic about the way we deal with the future. We have a capacity which must be peculiar to us, Gary, to close our eyes. I've said, I said before. We've talked about this before, Gary. I wrote a blog, crying out loud, blog, seven, eight Where are I? Twenty yeah, Seven, eight years ago, saying that we were facing in. We already had a housing crisis in the country, and it was only going to get worse unless somebody started to do something really serious about it. And now a gobshade and gory could look at the fact that we had gone for X number of years without building houses. We had effectively stopped building houses. We had a population which is shaped as it is, and we're lucky. We have, for the rest of the developed world, an unusually young population. That's We're going to run out of the road on that fairly soon, but still where we are. there is There was obvious, very serious pent-up demand for housing in the economy. And we weren't building houses and nobody was doing anything about it. And we went on and they basically woke up to the extent that they did. A year, year and a half ago, they started actually doing something about it. And even then, what they're doing about it is, I was listening to a, a podcast we did around two years ago, talking about the the, the great plan for uh, for housing in the country. And honest to God, I mean, what's what actually has been achieved of that great plan, which wasn't costed and wasn't designed, and it was it had demand front loaded and it was supply was back loaded, and all that. And we said at time, like, all this is going to do is drive house prices up in the sky, and that's exactly what it has done. Uh, this is not hard, Gary. It really, this is not hard. It wasn't hard back in two thousand and seven to look at the exchequer figures and realize that twenty, what, 24 percent of in income was coming down directly from house building, when at that time we were building 90,000 houses in a year and the UK was building 180,000 houses, but it had an economy or a population like 15 times bigger than ours. That wasn't hard to work out. And okay, maybe you and I shouldn't be able to be in a position to be so well briefed that we know these things are happening and to develop policies. But these people, they have all the numbers. They have all the dats the data, and they have all the stats, and they have people to work out these numbers and tell them to write briefing papers. What are, they, what are they doing, really? What are they doing up there? I mean, if it was something that came out of the sky, if it was an asteroid, if it was a tsunami, if one day Australia had decided to invade China and the whole world was covered in a conflagration and nothing was being fine, but that's not what has happened. You can't blame everything on Ukraine, Gary. And I'm not saying you are, but you know, Ukraine has become a very useful cover for just a complete balsam. I mean, there are two options here, Michael,
0: that I can see. One is they legitimately weren't aware how bad things had gotten and have now become aware and are putting in this review to find out how things happened or happened. I'm going to say that's very, very unlikely to be true for the very simple reason that this has been heavily reported. I know this is something that some of the departments have been looking at for a while. And so the idea that at a ministerial level, they weren't... O- now, they might not have been aware of some of the specifics of how th- bad things had gotten. But last year was dodgy. Like, if we had had a bad winter last year, we would have ran into serious issue. So the idea that having just had that, they wouldn't have looked into it then, strikes me as, as highly unlikely. Which leads me to what I think is, is the more likely option. This is... An incredibly cynical ass-covering exercise where they will blame everyone but themselves, have a review into it, and then say there is nothing we could have done. It is simply a function of the war or was necessary for climate change or anything that will shift this from being the foreseeable consequences of their own policies to basically an asteroid strike. Now, if the first is correct, These people aren't fit for their jobs. I mean, if you could not see this one coming, despite the fact it's being talked about, and I know a great number of people in industry, not just in the energy industry, but in general business, have been having discussions about this with the department, have been bringing it to politicians. So I don't don't view the idea that that didn't get true as in any way believable. It
1: doesn't. On the face of it, it doesn't stand up. It just doesn't.
0: The one thing I would say about it, Michael, is if it is the second... That would indicate that the cabinet does not expect this to be a good winter. Because if you thought it would be, then you wouldn't do something like this, which immediately gives rise to why didn't you do it earlier and follow-on questions. I, I I
1: think they may have an inkling that this is not going to be a pleasant winter. i you kind of have to wonder if actually deep deep in the heart of government Sinn Fein haven't planted some <laughs> sleepers that they have activated, because. If we do get a, and I, God knows I don't want this to happen because, I mean, we're going to see significant increases in electricity prices. And I'm hopeful that it's not going to be quite as bad as some people are predicting, but some of the predictions are absolutely shocking the kinds of increases in electricity prices that we could see. We're going to see significant increases in every form of fuel. Uh, coal, oil, gas, everything you're going to see potentially if we get if we get a bad winter we're going to see uh blackouts. The poorer will of course be the people who will be most affected by this you're going to see people who are going to have very real energy poverty you're going to have people who may not be able to heat their houses you're going to have people making choices that they really shouldn't have to be making in this uh, because of this failure. What? In any kind of functioning democracy, Gary, all they're, going to, they're just in the process of setting up an overall majority for Sinn Féin because you can't vote for these people. If, 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 and I hope to God we all get terribly lucky and we have a lovely, mild, and windy winter and we get through it and it's okay. But if we don't, I don't see how anybody can turn around and say, "Oh, no, we, we, yeah, she'll give him another go." I mean, Christopher did you see Leo's comment? Moving on from from, from uh, energy back to housing briefly. Did you see
0: the comment about housing? I saw the I, I assume this is I assume I saw the comment you're going to refer to because it had all the grace and subtlety of just a balloon made of solid steel.
1: And again, are there since eleven so they're eleven years in government. He's eleven years in government tonight. A tonnage to in for a lump of that. And what did he say? Let's have another go at it.
0: Now, Michael, I think it's worth giving the exact quote here because it's a bad one. And I can see, so this is this is his exact quote <laughs> when um, when he was asked to talk about the, the government's housing for all plan, which is, it's its own issue. <clears throat> I think we need to have another go at housing, really, and see what can be done.
1: we have to have another
0: he did he did go on to say because while our plans are working they're not working fast enough and that's very obvious to me but I'm just going to say if you are a former Taoiseach you're currently thawder you hope to be Taoiseach again you're asked about what is likely to be one of the more pressing issues or at least somewhere that you could display competency and you know, maybe win back some voters. And your response is I think we should have another go at it. Like it's a fucking football game. Let's have
1: another go. A football game. Or you know, or a or a a a difficult jigsaw that you'd got tired of because there was too much blue sky and the ah, it was just too hard. Now let's have another go at it. We'll finish it this time. We'll have another go. It was a bit it was a bit boring. Just to contextualize this, this is just after
0: in that interview he said the problems with housing were a breach of the social contract. So you're astonished it. You said the social contract is being breached, and then your response is I sure we'll have another go at it. It's magnificent. Like that's a, a wild swing in how important it sounds like you're treating that issue. But then again, I mean Leo comes out and he, he comes out with the idea of a thirty percent tax rate. And Michael, I've complained before that Finnegale had been in power for so long and haven't cut taxes. But I think I also correctly predicted that as they came towards an election there was going to be mention of tax cuts this time. In the same way that we've seen with other elections. They just never get around to it. And, you know, if you're Pascal Donahue you deny you ever said it to begin with. And um let's see, the thirty percent rate comes out with it. And then I I'd say that lasted about a week before there there was a sort of, well that won't be in the budget, but I don't want to say it, so uh, let's just say there's a debate happening. That's a very clear attempt to position himself as the person pushing for tax cuts against a Fianna Fáil and a Green Party that won't accept it. The problem is we've seen this before. We've seen it over and over, and it never seems to get across the line. I mean, I don't. Even Cormac Lucy, when he was writing about this, basically said uh, he just didn't care. And like for Cormac Lucy to come out and write a piece basically saying that this idea of effectively a tax cut was unimportant, that's hard to do. Cormac Lucy strikes me as a man who loves a good tax cut. And actually his article, quite amusingly, pointed out that uh, the average developed state raises 23% of its revenue from, in- from income taxes and Ireland raises 32%. And then basically says... Um, there's plenty of ways that governments could lift the income tax burden without the need for thirty percent
1: right. Indeed, but well, uh, yeah, but I have, I have, I have no confidence. I, what well, I was going to say, I have no confidence in the capacity of the, the people to remember all the broken promises. Actually, it's one of your. It's your. Must be having a good week. I'm, I'm, I'm reminded of a question you asked we discussed rhetorically a couple of weeks ago, which was if you're a voter and you're in the middle of the, you're the, middle of the pack, you're, sort of, you're not a big high earner, but you're, you're, you're up there paying the top rate, at least on part of your income. Which party are you most likely to believe when they say we're going to cut your taxes? And I think the bizarre moment is now, that, as we said at, at the time, I think that Sinn Féin is the answer to that question. I think if if you're not you're you're not one hundred and fifty or two hundred thousand a year kind of a person, you're a 45, 50 grand person. I think yeah, you think you know. I think the people who are most likely to cut my taxes are, in fact, Sinn Fein.
0: I will say there's a piece in the Sunday Times. It's an interview with Stephen O'Brien, the political editor of the Sunday Times, uh, and Leo Veradker. and it's titled "Finnegale has won the argument on tax," Leo Veradker. And it starts by saying Finnegal has won the debate inside government on the need for further income tax cuts, and all that has to be decided is how <laughs> to carry them out. Leo Veradker has told The Sunday Times. And I've got to say this, Michael, as someone who would be on you know that side of things, like um, it's moved from a point where I was supportive of Finnegal when they said they needed to cut tax to where I was indifferent to Finnegal when they said they would cut tax. To now, every time they bring it up, it doesn't make me more likely to vote for them. It makes me less likely to vote for them because I just think they're lying.
1: You could even say it's even worse because if you are still a little bit innocent in your heart, you might even look at Finnegan and think to yourself, they actually might believe that it would be a good idea to cut taxes, but they won't do it. And that kind of even makes it a little bit worse. I mean, yeah, they're either so
0: incompetent that they shouldn't be voted for, or they're lying to you. And not only are they lying to you, but they've lied to you consistently for multiple elections at this point. I mean, do you remember the bonfire of the quangos, Michael?
1: Bonfire of the
0: quangos. Where we were going to see a, a gutting of the NGOs, the the lobby groups. Uh, that didn't happen. Instead, we got more of them. We've had, I think, three elections in a row where finnegal has explicitly promised to cut taxes and then failed to cut taxes at all and in some cases increased taxes so why would you believe anything they say and it's gotten to the point now that when i hear it it actually aggravates me like and it is a message that you would think like if you were you know running the strategy on this michael you would think that's the message to win back voters who are interested in the economic side of things and and the wage bracket side of things.
1: Did you ever read the Peanuts cartoon with Charlie Brown? If Finnegan are now, old, have become Lucy. There is a recurring joke in that Lucy will tee up, will hold the football so that Charlie Brown can kick the football, right? And every single time, Charlie believes that this time, this time, Lucy will just tee the football. But every time she takes it away. And Charlie goes and he kicks thin air and goes arse over tip. But every time it comes back, he will believe her again. And Fine Gael have now become the Lucy of tax cuts. They keep, oh yeah, this time, this time it will be different. Well, you know, it depends. If the voters are going to be Charlie Brown and keep believing them, then fine. As you say, we get the governments we deserve.
0: What I think is actually quite unique about this government, now that I think about it, is previous governments might promise tax cuts and not deliver them. But there would be an explanation for why those tax cuts were not delivered. Now, it might be total horseshit, but there was a feeling that an explanation needed to be provided. But as I said, we had Pascal Donoghue just outright deny that he had ever said that USC should be abolished. It's not that they're not providing explanations. They're just telling you that they didn't say it. Like, you did say it. Like, there's written records. You fucking said it. Of course you said it, and you don't know if it's just that they are they think that it doesn't matter or that you won't check or if they just don't care or or maybe they're just that legitimately bad at what they're doing that they're like, "Oh, that was four years ago. What kind of person would remember something that was said four years ago?
1: Well, having kicked Finnegale around a fair bit um it's rather ironic tomorrow myself and uh uh, our fellow board member, uh, Paddy Manning, are going to be down representing the EBI and having chats with people at the Michael Collins commemoration, which will be planted thickly, I imagine, with uh, blue shirts of all denominations, even blue shirts who have tried to explain to me that Michael Collins actually was a founder of Finnegale, which is a tricky one since Finnegale wasn't founded until I think ten years after the man was was assassinated, and in fact died as far as I'm aware a member of Sinn Fein in good standing. I hope that they don't throw stones at us, Gary. Yeah, you see, Michael,
0: you say that, and the average listener might think that these sort of things aggravate the average Finnegel T D. But let's be honest, a lot of those lads have given up on everything. Like they're shells. They are
1: husks. Kinda <laughs> at times it's kinda of comical, at times it's kinda of sad. And then you get the Yeah, you get the odd guy who's just decided to be sitting in the corner growling at them. But mostly, no, it's just, well, it's a good job and you get free parking in the middle of Dublin and a subsidised canteen. What more can you want?
0: Yeah, I mean, you, I've met Fine Ltds TDs over the last while and you say these things to them and they don't even, like, maybe they'll say you're wrong, but it's the most half-assed sort you of. Know
1: you know what, you know, Gary, they don't even. The worst is you regularly meet them and they enthusiastically agree. You're right. It's a shambles. It's a nightmare. It's the worst government in the last 50 years. You're thinking, boy, aren't you a little bit involved? Ah, fuck it. Anyway, Gary, uh, as I say, we'll be down. If anybody's anybody's listening and this goes up in time to see us, we'll be there tomorrow. We'll be there on Monday for some of the activities. Do come up and say hello. Uh, we'd love to see you. Uh, otherwise, we'll be back uh, next Sunday. No more holidays, are there?
0: Uh, No, we'll be back next Sunday, and then I will be away on my hiking trip. I think the Sunday after that, hopefully just the one Sunday, but we'll see. (laughs) We'll see. But until
1: then, mind yourselves.
0: All the best.